Hi, everybody. My okay. All right. Recording in progress. My name is Jimmy. I am an alcoholic. Grateful to be alive and sober. And uh, it's always been customary where I come from uh, to let you know that I have a home group. It's called the Design for Living Group. I have a sponsor. I have a service sponsor. Apparently, I need a lot of adult supervision. Uh, I sponsor a lot of guys. But most importantly, I've been sober since my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that was on March 28, 19. 87. So uh, extremely grateful for this way of life, extremely grateful for Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, again, thank you, Eric, for uh, inviting me, Jeannie, for hosting a meeting, for everyone being here tonight. And uh, uh, how do you wind up in Mississippi? I have no idea. You know, you get a phone call. Hey, can you do a talk? Okay, I'll do a talk. And here I am in Mississippi. So uh, I'll tell you in a general way what my life was like and how I blew up like most of us and uh, how I landed in Alcoholics Anonymous. And because of a loving God and the 12 steps of alcohol and Alcoholics Anonymous, my life is pretty good these days. Uh, I always like to start off by telling you that I was born perfect and I was quickly handed over to these two character defects called mom and dad. And though I make a joke about that, the truth of the matter is what I found out being around here for a little bit is that alcoholism doesn't come in a bottle. It comes in my mind and my mind is filled with a lot of delusions about a lot of things. And one of the biggest delusions I have is nothing's my fault, you know, and it started with my parents, obviously, and it started with them and it moved through every person that was in my life, you know, or situation in my life. It's, you know, her fault, their fault, the boss's fault, the job's fault. You know, looking at myself has always been a hard task to do. But, you know, I make that joke because, you know, all my parents ever try to do for me is, you know, give me a good life, give me morals, values, a good education. And, you know, what I introduced my parents to is a way of life that they never even knew existed. You know, all the goodness they ever gave me. You know, uh, I just rolled it up into a nice ball and I stuffed it right down my parents' uh, 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 throats. So, you know, uh, I'm growing, I grow up in northern New Jersey. I grow up on uh, the Jersey side of the Hudson River. I live right across from uh, Manhattan, New York City. Uh, I am 65 years old. I'm going to be 66 soon. I, I grow up in a very hard, uh, tough neighborhood, a very blue collar neighborhood. I grow up in a in a town called Jersey City where... Uh, you know, my neighborhood, everyone's a union worker, everyone's a cop, everyone's a fireman. Uh, my dad was a butcher. Uh, you know, I never really saw a guy leave the house in a suit and jacket to go to work, that's for sure. And, and I grew up in a time when, you know, the only requirement for membership in my neighborhood was five or more kids, you know. And then the one thing that was always at every event in my uh, neighborhood and my family, because there was a lot of kids, there was always birthday parties and christenings and uh, uh, graduations, you name it. The thing that was at every event was King Alcohol. And you see, you hear that saying quite often, you know, that alcoholism is a disease of perception, you know. And again, I'm six, seven, eight years old. The way I look at alcohol from a young age is that alcohol equates to freedom. Alcohol equates to fun. Alcohol equates to, you know, some sort of uh, thing that just makes everyone happy, you know. And, and, you know, with all these parties and with all these things going on in my neighborhood, you know, I would, I would witness that as a six-year-old, seven-year-old, eight-year-old, you know. I got this guy called Dad. He's cunning, he's baffling, he's powerful. I live with this guy. Uh, my dad, he's a, he's a tough guy. My dad's a, a World War One vet. Uh, you know, he's, uh, he's a guy that would never sit you down and talk about his feelings, that's for sure. There would never be a fireside chat about what's going on in the family. Uh, my dad was basically a lunatic. Uh, he was an angry guy. Uh, I guess today, if we look back, he's he would have been 96. He probably had PTSD. I mean, he was just a guy that was wound real tight, you know. And uh, 
you know, but what would happen every night at five o'clock is my mom would make these two pictures, one called martinis and one called Manhattans. And what I would witness as a young kid, eight, nine, 10 years old, is the ease and comfort that comes at once by taking that first drink. Because my old man would come in the house and he'd have a drink and all of a sudden he became a different person. He became a guy that wanted to have a catch in the backyard. He became a guy that had a kind of a sense of humor. He became a guy that was just different. Like he had the same effect that it had the effect on all of us in his room right tonight, you know? But don't let me fool you. There were those days. And those days looked something like this. My dad would come in the house huffing and puffing about something. And uh, he'd take that drink. And then all of a sudden, the kitchen plates would be flying across the kitchen. The kitchen chairs would be flying across the kitchen. If he grabbed one of us young kids, we'd be flying across the kitchen, you know? Now, none of that makes me alcoholic. But I'll tell you what happens. When my father would come in and that would go on, what me and my two brothers and my two sisters would do, we'd, we'd hide under the covers in our bedrooms, right? And we wait for that tornado to roar through their house. And then when the, it, all the anger and yelling and screaming and throwing of things just calmed down, we would walk out and it's like, you know, hey, mom, the wind stopped blowing, nothing matter here. You know, like all of a sudden, we never talked about what just went on in my house. So from a young age, and none of that makes me alcoholic, but from a young age, I'm a kid that grows up with a tremendous amount of fear. Loud noises, yelling, screaming. You know, I, I, I'm like a clam. I just shut down. I'm a kid that wakes, I grow up with a lot of insecurity about myself and the way I feel about a lot of things. But worst of all, I grow up with a kid with a lot of secrets. You see, if you come from my family and you come from my neighborhood, you never talk about what's going on in your house. You never talk about what's going on in your neighborhood. So from a young age, I internalize my feelings. I push down all this stuff, all this anger, rage, fear, all this insecurity. And, you know, I just thought that's the way life is supposed to be. But at the age of 13 years old, that moment happened. You know, and I think we all have a moment, you know, and the moment might be a big deal. It might be a little deal. I think mine's kind of a little deal. But the moment was I was in fifth grade and my parents, I was in a public school system and not seeing that my parents wanted the best for me. They pulled me out of the public school system and they brought me across town to the Catholic school and they put me into a Catholic school where I knew nobody. Now, when was I, when I was in that public school system, you know, having friends, playing ball, doing all the things that, you know, 10, 11, 12 year olds do. There was a sense of, you know, easiness. There was a sense of okayness inside of me. But when my parents brought me to that Catholic school system, you know, the first thing I met was these, these things called nuns. And they were cunning, baffling, and powerful in their own way, you know. But I was with new kids. I was like that square peg at a round hole. We hear that all the time, you know. But I'm 13 years old. And I'm, in these, in this, and, and I'm with these new kids. And uh, what happened this particular night was my first drink. You know, it was 53 years ago. I can remember like it happened this afternoon. And I'm in a cemetery, five guys that I still know to this day. And here comes that first bottle. It's called Cold 45 Malt Liquor. And I put my hand in there with a lot of fear because I don't know what's going to happen if I start drinking alcohol. And I start drinking on that beer. And here comes that second bottle. It's called Mohawk Blackberry Brandy. And I start drinking on that Blackberry Brandy. And I'll tell you what happened on my first night drinking. I blacked out. I puked purple for about two weeks. My father gave me a beating of my life. My mother grounded me for, for apparently forever, but the hook was in. I found that magic elixir, that thing that just settled down, that everything that was inside of me. And I'm not even sure what all those things were inside of me. I just know that there was a tightness. There was a, a, a thing about me that I don't know. I don't even know how to explain it. But when King Alcohol hit my system, all of a sudden bets were off. And what happened to me was basically I just stepped on a path that goes straight to pitiful and comprehensible demoralization because the next 16 years of my life 
full-blown alcoholism and homelessness on the streets of northern New Jersey became the way of life, you know. And I'm not going to bore you with a lot of drunken log stories, but, you know, uh, my drinking be, became progressive, so did my behavior. You see, I grew up in an age when, you know, my mom and dad would open up the door, really my mother would open up the door and we, you know, she kind of like boot us out. You know, eight o'clock in the morning. She knew they could come home sooner or later, but it was a safe time living on the streets, hanging out on the streets. And like I say all the time, you know, hanging on the streets, living on the streets, you learn a lot of things about the streets, you know, and you learn about a lot of things that uh, are criminal in nature, you know. And all of a sudden, you know, uh, the people that were really important in my life, like my older brothers and my uncles and stuff like that, they weren't that important. The people that started to become really important in my life were the older guys in the in the in the in the bars, the guys that were hanging on the corners, the guys uh, that were in the schoolyard. You know, the most important guy I thought in the neighborhood was the neighborhood bookie. I mean, he had a nice car. He always had a good-looking girl on his on his arm. He always had a wad of cash in his pocket. That was someone I wanted to be inspired to. So this is just the way I'm growing up early on, you know, living on the streets, doing little petty crimes, doing little things that, you know, it's not like my parents ever sat me down and said, this is how you rob a car or anything like that. But with my drinking, everything started to become very uh, progressive. My parents wanted the best for me and always wanted to give me a good uh, education, always put me after, you know, after grammar school, they put me into a, you know, a Jesuit college, uh, Jesuit high school, you know, I was always surrounded about with religious people i was always surrounded with uh priests and nuns in my life i just it just became a way of life and they were really family friends to my parents all the time but i'll tell you just a little story about me you know in new jersey uh back then the drinking age was 18 years old and if your chin could hit a bar you were getting served by 15 or 16 in every bar you know uh it would be very easy to go to, to an old man's bar and just start you know ordering a drink as long as you had money they would serve you you know, and uh, so I'm an everyday drinker by the time I'm 17, 18 years old. And I'm not drinking to get loaded every day. The alcoholic life seems the normal one. Doesn't this what everyone does? Have a few beer at lunch, have a few beers after school, have a few sneak a few beers at night. I just thought this was a normal way of living. But the best story I could tell you, or just, it's not the best story, but the story I want to tell you is about the story in high school when I was confronted by a priest over my drinking. And we got a kind of a shouting match. And all of a sudden, I knocked this priest out. Now, a lot of people go, ooh, like that. And I'm like, okay, I didn't go to hell right away, but I knocked this priest out. And uh, I tell you that for a reason, because it earmarks a spot in my life. It earmarks a spot in my life when I realized, looking back, whenever I was faced with anything in my life, any tough time, any situation in my life, or any person that I had a problem with, I either got angry at it or I drank at it. And that way, it, it just became a way of life with me. You know, at 17, 18 years old, I became my father. And I was an angry kid. I was an angry guy. And, and that was the way my life was for a long period of time. You know, I got out of high school and uh, eventually went on to college. Uh, I'd like to tell you that I spent at least four years in college. I spent about six months in college before I got thrown out of college because I couldn't stop drinking. I had the inability to stop drinking. So I come home to New Jersey and, you know, what's a guy to do? I have no trade. I have no education. I don't have a hope to get a union job. And by the time I'm 20 years old, you know, going down to the corner bar to try to figure out my life just becomes a way of life. You know, going down to the corner bar and trying to think of what I'm going to do in my life. You know, and there's a problem with that. And the problem is that I take that first drink on a daily basis. 
I see when I take that first drink, all bets are off, you know, and I didn't understand that until I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. And even when I was in AA and I would hear things like the first drink gets you loaded, I thought that was the most ridiculous thing I ever heard in my life. You know, I always thought it was the last 20, the outside issues. I mean, I always had excuses why. But the first drink was getting me drunk every day. And I didn't understand why with all the goals, the dreams, the aspirations that we all have. And I had, I wanted to be something. I wanted to do something in my life. But by the time I'm 20 years old, I'm just in a corner bar every day. And that day would look like most days, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon, I'm going to go home, but I never go home. Five o'clock, I have a bag on. Eight o'clock, nine o'clock, you know, two o'clock, it closes off to New York City for the after hours bars. And that cycle, that vicious cycle that I was trapped in was just on and on and on. No idea about a physical allergy, no idea about the phenomena of craving. You know, all my problems were external. It was your fault, her fault, Jeannie's fault, Eric's fault. It was everyone else's fault for the way I felt deep down inside. And my life was all twisted up, you know. I'm kind of a double-edged sword guy where everything is their fault or someone else's fault. But there's also a side of me that's always searching and seeking something out there to make myself feel better in here. And whether that's drinking, drugs, money, cars, women, you name it, I was always on a search for something. There has to be a magic potion that's out there that's going to make me feel okay inside here. So when I was about 25 years old, you know, I met this woman in a bar, obviously, you know, uh, my sister introduced me to this girl. And, you know, I'm under this delusion. Again, this, this, this alcoholism is nothing more than a delusion of the mind. And this delusion is that if I just get married, settle down, because all the guys around me seem to be doing that. They seem to be getting careers. They seem to find that woman. They seem to buy a house. They seem to be, you know, having kids. They seem to be happy, joyous, and free. And I'm stuck in that bar on a daily basis. So I meet this woman, and, you know, four months into the marriage, what I realize is I have the inability not to take that first drink. I'm powerless, but I don't know those words. I don't know that until I land in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm in this marriage. I can't stop drinking. We're fighting all the time. And I do what most cowards do. I walk out of the marriage after four months. I'm 25 years old. I'm 26 years old around. And, uh, and I walk out of this marriage and I flatten this woman. I leveled her with my, with my behavior. And I took off for a place called Boca Raton, Florida, where I uh, had a couple of friends and a family friend that had a lot of money. And, you know, I'm drinking around the clock. I'm 25, 27 years old. I can't even remember the, the age. But I'm drinking around the clock. And, uh, you know, I got that guilt, that shame, that remorse. I'm getting that knock at the door every day, the four horsemen of terror, frustration, bewilderment, despair showing up. I got every emotion that Bill talks about, every character defect going on in my life, but I'm still under the delusion that drinking's not even a problem. Now, a blind man can see that drinking's a problem, but here I am, I'm down there, and somewhere along the lines, I swear that God just cracked my skull open, and in my skull, he put this chalkboard, and in this chalkboard, there was these three emotions of, you know, shame, guilt, and remorse, and it seems to me that everything that went on to my life up to this moment created some sort of shame. Shame of not being a good child, or a good uh, uh, son, a shame of not being a good brother, shame of failing out of school, shame of losing jobs, shame of walking out of marriage. Shame, 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 shame. You know, most alcoholics have shame-based identities. Not only that, the guilt of the people I was hurting and the remorse of all the, you know, I wasn't raised to be an animal, but I was an animal. So here I am, I'm down in Boca Raton and, uh, you know, I'm getting that knock every day and I still got this solution. It's called Johnny Walker Red, you know, and I'm at this point in my drinking where I just need to crack the seal of a bottle because I know when I do take that first drink, all that grandiosity is going to come back. And when it does, what do I do? Well, what I always do, it's your fault. It's our fault. It's everyone else's fault. I can't take stock honestly of my life. 
I have to blame someone for the way I feel inside. So what happens to me is, you know, I, I, I burned a lot of bridges. Uh, I, I'm riddled with this shame and uh, I decide to come back to New Jersey. I'm uh, 27 years old and, uh, and, I, and I'm afraid to call my family. I'm afraid to call the, woman, the wife in limbo, whatever you want to call her at that point. And I make a decision and the decision is to live on the streets of uh, northern New Jersey. And for the next 19 months of my life, I lived homeless on, uh, on uh, you know, northern New Jersey and lower Manhattan. You know, we have the we have the train station that goes between, the you know, New York and New Jersey. And uh, I would jump the turnstile. I'd be in I'd be in a city panhandle and I'd be stealing. I'd be robbing. I'd, you know, my life just became very traumatic, very dehumanizing. I mean, if you lived one night on the street, you know that one night's too many. I mean, uh. Uh, it's a different way of life when you live on the streets. And uh, I did things I swore I would never do. I had things happen to me. I swore that would never happen. Uh, my life would, uh, was basically, you know, but I always like to say, if I took a, a basketball, let's just say, and it was made of glass and I just dropped it, I mean, it would shatter. And basically at the 20 years, the age of 27 years old, my life was shattered in every direction. I had no direction, really. And I'm dying of this thing called alcoholism. And I don't even know it. That's the power of this thing. I think that everything is, again, I hate to harp on this, but I think everything is an external problem. I have no idea about this thing called alcoholism. Never heard of words like sobriety or Alcoholics Anonymous and recovery or anything like that. So I'm just walking the streets. I'm putting my head down wherever I can put my head down. I'm selling blood whenever I can sell blood. I'm doing all the things that we do when you live on the streets. And I walk in a bar one day and, uh, and I see a guy in a bar that I knew and he came up to me. He was an older guy. And he said, Jimmy, uh, uh, they're hiring guys like you in Newark Airport. Guys like us. They were hiring guys like us. There used to be an airline called People's Express that eventually became, United, eventually became Continental, then United. And back then, People's Express would hire guys like us to take the luggage that was over there and hopefully get it on the plane that's over there. And so he would tell us, this guy told me that they're hiring and all you need to do is go out to the airport and, uh, and, and do a little interview and you'll probably get the job because they want, they need people. So that next day, me and two guys, we robbed a car and we went out to Newark Airport. All three of us are now sober over near all 37 years of sobriety, all of us. Uh, quite comical amends to the guy that we robbed the car off. He's still a good friend of ours. But we go out to Newark Airport that next day, and I'm a mess. And the interview process looks something like this. You would walk in the room, and you can imagine the size of an airport. I mean, it's huge, Newark Airport. It's a huge, big international airport. Uh, you know, there's people everywhere. There's things, activities, a lot going on. Uh, and we walked in this room, and the guy basically just said, can you lift the suitcase? Yeah, okay, then you got the job, you know, and that was the job. And I want to tell you about that day, because what happened to me was – after this guy just talked to me for a little while, I mean, he was shaking his head looking at me, but I walked out of that room and I sat down in a metal chair or a chair out in the, in the general area of the airport. And for years, I couldn't tell you how I felt. For years, I couldn't put words to that moment until I landed into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it wasn't until I picked up that blue book and I turned to page eight and I read Bill's story. And when Bill still talks about his first step experience, I think he puts words to all our first step experience when he says, "No words can tell the, uh, the no words can tell the loneliness and despair I felt the, in the bitter morass of self pity." Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I met my match. I've been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. And at the age of twenty nine years old, sitting in that airport, 
with the wind blowing through the hole in my soul, I think drinking's a problem. This is my first admission. I think maybe, just maybe, that drinking's a problem. And again, a blind man can see that. Within about three or four minutes, a complete stranger sat next to me. And a stranger, after a little bit, looking at me, he said, uh, what's your problem? Now, people weren't asking me how my 401k was doing or how my children were doing or anything of good, goodness was doing. This gentleman looked at me and said, what's your problem? And for whatever reason, well, I know it's really the grace of God. And I spit up my life story on this guy in about 10 minutes. And he looked at me and goes, where do you live? I said, wherever I could put my head down, put my head down. He asked me a question that I thought was quite odd at the time. He says, is it possible for you not to take a drink the rest of this day? And I was honest with him. I said, I want to drink right now. It was like 10 o'clock in the morning. He said, try not to pick out, try not to, try not to take a drink today and be at this address. And he pulled out a piece of paper. This is pre-cell phone, pre-beeper days. And he wrote down a street. He said, you know where this is? I said, that's my old neighborhood. And he put a number in front of that street, in front of that street and said, be there at seven o'clock tonight. And at seven o'clock that night, I'm standing in front of that address. Delusional, out of my mind, really. My knees are knocking, my stomach's churning. My mind's like, was I even in Newark Airport today? I mean, I was in really rough, bad shape. But for whatever reason, I'm standing on at that address at seven o'clock that night when all of a sudden a 1979 Chevy Impala pulled up. And that Chevy, and that, and that Chevy was being driven by that stranger. And in that car, there was a few other strangers that I'd never met before. And when they rolled up on me, they rolled that window down and they said that most spiritual thing you'll ever hear in Alcoholics Anonymous, get in the car. And I got in the car with these gentlemen and they took me around the corner to my grammar school where for years I thought it was bingo, but who knew it was AA. And they walked me into my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and that was on March 28, 1987. And see, walking into grace doesn't feel like walking into grace. It felt like I was just walking out of complete uh, chaos. I had no idea of the enormity of what I was going about to walk into. I had no idea what alcohol, I never even know what alcohol, I didn't even know it when I was standing in the room that night. I had no idea what Alcoholics Anonymous was. But I walked down those stairs in my grammar school and I had all these recollections of when I was in sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade. I remember passing that cafeteria. I looked in that cafeteria. I remember I was a kid that had goals and dreams and aspirations. I wanted to do something. I wanted to, I didn't want to be a union worker. I don't know why that was so bothersome to me, but I wound up being a union worker anyway. You know, I wanted something good in my life. You know, I was just tired of all the nonsense and the stuff in my house and my old man. And I just wanted to be free, you know. But here I am walking down a hallway into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. When at the end of that hall, I met the most important person you'll ever meet. We called him the greeter. And that gentleman put his hand out to me and I grabbed that flimsy reed and he pulled me into you. Today, I know that's the loving and uh, powerful hand of God that was at, at that in, in that moment. And that gentleman gave me something that I think we're all responsible to give. And he gave me a piece of dignity because he didn't judge me. He didn't care that I smelled. He didn't care that everything was, every other word was a profanity. He said, hey, kid, just come in. Sit up front. We have a cup of coffee. It's easy if you sit up front because then you can hear what the speaker is going to say. And that was my day. That was my introduction to Alcoholics Anonymous. And that stranger became my sponsor that night. And that group was a, a young people's group. I was 29 years old, and I was the youngest guy in the group that night. And that became my home group. So on day one, I had a sponsor, and I had a home group. And, you know, it took away the interview process, I guess. I had no idea what either or meant. 
but I was part of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, it's unbelievable how I can remember those first week of my recovery so long ago. Because you see, these men that I got around that night, they were kind men. They were really old. They were like 45 years old, you know. I'm 29, they're 45, but it's a different generation. These guys already had careers. These guys already had families. These guys already had, you know, kids and, and, and jobs and all that stuff. And what I like to say is it's the kindness of strangers that got me into Alcoholics Anonymous and kept me in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because what these men did, you know, it wasn't like we were speaking about the book back then. We didn't talk about the book like we do today. I mean, my home group today is a 300-person home group on every Sunday night. Uh, we're a big book study, you know. But back then, it was speaker meetings. It was discussion meetings. You know, we didn't really talk about, you know, the literature so much, maybe the 12 and 12, you know. So, you know, um, so these guys, you know, they just surround, you know, I used to say they, they didn't know the difference between a phone book and a big book. But I'll tell you what they did. If, they, if you needed help, they'd be on your front door. And what these men did for me was that first night, they put me up in a motel for a week. They went to a department store and bought me clothes. They bought me sneakers, jeans, T-shirts. You know, on day two, they came to get me to bring me, they came to get, bring me to a meeting. And I did something that was very odd. I shared an emotion. Now you might be saying to yourself, Jim, what are you talking about? Shared an emotion. You see, I'm, I'm a guy from the streets. So I don't talk about stuff that's going inside. You know, I live under that John Wayneism, that code, like real men don't share their pain. Real men don't talk about how they feel. Real men don't cry. All that crap. And that's how I was. But on this particular day, this guy, Richie, pulled up and I told him, hey, Richie, man, I'm scared. He goes, why are you scared? I said, I want a drink. And what I witnessed that day was what a trusted servant in Alcoholics Anonymous does. You know, he called up his wife and said, take me off the calendar. He brought me to three meetings that day. He fed me three times. I probably drank 100 cups of coffee that day, but I felt like I was a part of something at last. Day seven. I'm in my home group with my new sponsor, all these new people. I still don't know what's going on. I'm going to use an old term, AA term. You guys might know it down in Mississippi, but I was mocus. I was like shot out, as they say. Uh, I still don't know what's going on. Uh, my, my head is in the clouds. And uh, we're at this my new home group, and we're, and we're going to have a business meeting, a business meeting. And that, that's, that's exciting, a business meeting. And this guy, Richie, comes up to me and goes, I want you to take the job as the ashtray cleaner. And I'm like, you're out of your mind. I didn't say that to him, but in my head, I said, you're out of your mind. And I had a perfectly good reason. Why would I clean ashtrays? To this moment, I have never smoked a cigarette in my life, so why do I have to clean ashtrays? And what I didn't understand, that this gentleman was trying to get me tethered to Alcoholics Anonymous through a commitment. He wanted me to have a job so I have a responsibility so I could show up on a weekly basis and do the job. You know, and I got to tell you what happened. I said, yes, I'll do it. I listened to that small voice within. And that small voice within said, hey, this dude's just trying to help you. Trust this guy. He's trying to help you. And I said, yeah, I'll clean ashtrays. And what I could tell you is from that moment on day seven to this moment right now, 36 and a half years later, I've been tethered to Alcoholics Anonymous through a commitment, whether it's through a home group, my district, my area. I've been involved in the service of the third legacy of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and uh, been very involved in a lot of different things. But that really starts my journey in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, my life got really good, really quick. I bounced back immediately, really fast. My health came back. Uh, when, you know, back then, you know, the old timers really hammered you on going to the doctor, going to the dentist, taking care of your health. You've been out on the streets a long time. A lot of the guys I grew up with, a lot of the guys I hung out with all wound up with HIV or Hep, uh, hep, hep C. 
uh, you know, a lot of them died, you know, from HIV. They were all intra intravenous drug users. Uh, so there was a lot of things going on, but these old timers would be on top of us saying, you need to take care of your body. You need to take care of your health. And more importantly, you need to take care of your mind and spirit through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. So, you know, I got back with that wife, believe it or not. I have these two little AA babies, you know, uh, life looks great. Uh, I got a job. I got a really good job, really. And, uh, you know, uh, to, to, the, to the outside looking in, you would say, Jimmy, you're really successful. You know, you're doing really good. But at five years without a drink, I got a, I got a rope. I'm, I'm just looking for a bridge to jump off. And why I say this, because I'm dying of something I didn't even know I was dying from. I'm dying of something we weren't even talking about. I'm dying of this thing called untreated alcoholism. I'm physically sober. I'm under the delusion that abstinence is a solution to a spiritual malady. But I'm dying in the rooms because, you see, I'm still that 8-year-old, 10-year-old, 13-year-old kid walking around with a belly full of fear, a belly full of uh, insecurity, a belly full of secrets. You know, I'm physically sober. I'm not drinking and going to meetings. And not, we all know that's important, but I'm not changing. And at five years without a drink, I'm doing a talk in this town and I'm lying to everyone because I'm paralyzed by what you think of me. And I'm talking about God like I have a relationship with God. I don't. You know, I read the 12 and 12. I know some jokes. I could, you know, and at the end of the meeting, you know, the line comes up. They're shaking your hand. Thanks for speaking. And this guy walks up to me and I'm, I'm six foot four. He's six foot four, and he looks at me eyeball to eyeball, goes, you're screwed, a little saltier language. And I want to start a fist fight in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous because I don't know how to face confrontation without conflict or violence, really. I don't know how to face resistance with no resistance. And I want to start a fight with this guy, but I take a step back and I look at this gentleman. I said, you're right. I need help. And that next day, I find myself in his railroad room apartment in northern New Jersey. And this guy's giving me the spiritual test maybe a test that you've been given once or twice in your life. And what happened was I'm sitting in this uh, apartment and he's peppering me with some questions. First question he says to me is, Jim, how long could you hold your breath? How long can you hold your breath? How long can you be in a 12 step program and not work the 12 steps? Apparently five years. What's your relationship with God look like? Well, I believe in God, I'm a Catholic, but what does God really have to do with this? He asked me, the next question was, what makes you alcoholic? And the best I could stammer out of my mouth is, I drink too much. I had no idea about the physical allergy. I had no idea about the phenomenon called craving. I had no idea about the mental obsession. We weren't talking about that stuff. The talks around my way or my neighborhood back then was of, you know, a guy would come or a commitment would come and you'd hear 30 minutes of drunken log and then five minutes of maybe my life is great today. We weren't breaking down the book like we do today, you know? And, uh, and then he just kind of gave me a consideration. Well, before he even said that, he said, he asked me a question that sometimes people don't even believe, but he looked at me and said, where's your big book? And I asked him, what's a big book? Five years active in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I'm sure there was a book at a podium. I'm sure there was a book at a literature table. But again, we weren't encouraged to read that book or even open that book. It wasn't until 1991 when Joe and Charlie came through the Northeast, Harlem, New York specifically, where all of a sudden, the language of, of recovery through the 12 steps and the book Alcoholics Anonymous really started to come alive in my neighborhood. And, uh, you know, so that started to change the way we looked at a lot of things. But the last thing this gentleman asked me was, you know, Jim, if AA works, why do you have so many problems? Well, the truth of the matter is I'm not working Alcoholics Anonymous. Again, I have fallen under that delusion. 
that alcohol, that abstinence is the solution to the problems I suffer from. So what happened on this particular day is my life changed. My life drastically changed. And what happened was this guy, Bill, his name was Bill Grace. He came from St. Paul, Minnesota, the same place my sponsor comes from today, ironically, you know. This guy, Bill Grace, walked into my town. He had a blue book under his arm. He was a man with what depth and weight. He, he, had, he was on with the facts about himself. He carried this message. The old timers would have business meetings in, in my home group. And they would say, stay away from that guy because they felt threatened by his sobriety. As crazy as that sounds. Uh, but what this guy did is he sat me down on this particular day and he started to talk about the two goals of Alcoholics Anonymous. Two goals I kind of try to believe in today. You know, the first goal is the obvious one. Don't pick up the first drink. But the second goal is the goal we all want to attain. And I think is and that goal is to step into the sunlight of the spirit, to have a spiritual awakening, to have a psychic change, personality change, whatever you want to call it. You know, I like to sit with the guys downstairs in my house at the kitchen table, you know, and there's a beautiful day. I live on the Jersey shore. It's beautiful. I live right on the ocean. Gorgeous, right? A little cold today, but I always tell them, when I sit at that table, I said, see that glass door at the end of my hallway? You walk out that door, you're walking into the sunlight of the spirit. But in order to walk out into the sunlight of the spirit, you got to do something that's very different. You got to walk into the darkness of your life, right? And that's what this guy, Bill Grace, said to me. You have to walk into the darkness of your life. See, spirituality isn't about avoiding my problems. Spirituality is about attacking my problems. And what I started to understand is that I have to start taking these steps. There's a, a, there's a book we have in our conference-approved book called The Daily Reflections. Probably you guys are all familiar with that book. And if you turn to May 1st and look at that second paragraph, one of the most powerful readings I've ever read is in that book. It says, it's the side of myself that I refuse to, to look at that rules me. I must be willing to look at the dark side in order to heal my mind and my heart because that's the road to freedom. I must walk into darkness to find the light and walk into fear to find peace. And the way the old timers used to say that in my neighborhood was that Alcoholics Anonymous is like a big bonfire. A lot of people are walking around the fire, but eventually the fire is going to die. If you really want to change, if you really want to grow, if you really want to have an experience, you need to walk through that fire and get your ass burnt and feel the uncomfortability of change. And see, I was at that place in my life or that place in my sobriety where I was willing to go to any length now. I was willing to like get rid of the stuff that was inside of me because I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. And so we sat at that kitchen table and he started to open up that doctor's opinion. We were talking about that first step. I live right, Silkworth is right here. His gravesite is right by my house, right? Dr. William D. Silkworth. And I can't tell you how many times I've passed that cemetery where when I'm passing that cemetery, especially when the, the weather is nice, and I look in that cemetery, Glenwood Cemetery, and I look in there, and what do I see? I see you guys. I see two people with beach chairs, folding chairs. And what I witness is one drunk talking to another, explaining our first step experience, you know, all through our first step experience about this phenomenon called craving, everything that Silkworth talks about. But more importantly, what he says is that there's very little hope for my recovery unless I have a psychic change. And I started to understand that. Through my own story, I started to understand that every time I picked up that drink, I couldn't stop drinking. I had no power, choice, and control in my body. And I certainly had no power, choice, and control in my mind prior to that drink. Because how many times did I say to myself, I'm not drinking today, and I'm drinking today? How many times did I say to myself, I'm only going to have one or two, go watch the ball game, go watch halftime, go home and sleep, and I'd be out for two or three, four days at a clip. So I started to understand just through my own story what step one was all about, the powerlessness of that. 
we started to talk about step two and I started to understand something that he said to me that I thought was a little confusing, but now I look at it, now it's true it is. Nowhere in our literature does it say anything about AA getting us to quit drinking. Our first four chapters say the complete opposite. You can't quit drinking. Lack of power is your dilemma. You have no mental defense against that first drink. And I started to understand that, that I can't get me sober. I can't keep, I can't get, I can't get anyone sober. And I can't get anyone drunk. And the chapter we have was the wake-up call. Because what we know and what I know is that AA is really designed to awake us to the great reality, to a God of our understanding, to have this psychic change, to have this personality change. Because without that, there's very little hope for my recovery. And I understood that on a level that I never knew before. And as I did that third step with this gentleman and got on my knees, you know, Really, the decision was, yeah, God, to turn my will and my life over to care of God. But really, the decision for me was to walk into that hallway and do something that I had never thought I'd be able to do. And I thought was a weakness at one point was to be vulnerable to another man, to share my life with another man, a sponsor. And when I got off my knees, I made that decision to walk into the darkness of my life, to uncover, discover, and discard the things that are blocking me from God and, more importantly, blocking me from you. You know, I have built a lot of walls around me through the years, the walls of alibis, the walls of excuses. You know, there's, there's always been a thing between me and you and me and God. Old timers used to say this all the time, that alcoholism is nothing more than a soul sickness caused by a separation from God and a disconnect from each other. That's why I walk around and I'm so isolated, and that's why I don't talk to anyone. That's why I don't share anything. That's why I'm just, it's me on me. It's always me on me living life on Jimmy's terms and all that has ever created in my life. is just a lot of conflict, pain, suffering. So I was willing to go in. I was willing to go in and look at the common manifestations of living a life on self-will, you know, all the anger I had, all the rage I had. I started to get that down on paper. I started to look at all these fears. You know, I'm a tough guy from the streets. I'm not afraid of anything. Well, that's not the truth. I'm afraid of everything. And I didn't know that. So I started to get that out of my mind and get it on paper. I had to start looking at all the all the harm I caused. You know, I had to start looking at all the unhealthy dependencies that I put on people, especially women. You know, if, if you did something for me, then I felt good about me. I mean, what a way to live, you know, and put these unreal expectations on everyone in my life, being a director of life, you know. And then more importantly, what I really had to look at is the 19 months of living a life on, on the streets. That almost killed me. That was traumatic. And I really had to take a good look at that, you know, with the help of a sponsor. And I'll tell you, I went for that long talk. I had the most unbelievable day of my life, that first original fifth step. I've done many since, but that first one, I think that's the story of all of us. That first one where we're willing to just unburden what we're holding on to and let and share it with another person. And, you know, it was a long talk, like it, like it says. And, you know, at the end of that talk, I, you know, I took that hour. You know, I didn't go home and put the book on a shelf and take it off the shelf. I went to a place called Liberty State Park. Liberty State Park is on the Hudson River overlooking Manhattan. And I'll never forget this day. I walked out on this pier and I sat down on this pier. I opened up the book to page 75. I read those five proposals, the first five step of uh, five proposals, all the stones properly in place, all the questions it asked us. And all of a sudden I started to cry. I started to cry. I started to cry because there was a sense of freedom that I felt. And when I looked to my right, less than a quarter mile to my right was the Statue of Liberty. When I looked across the Hudson River, right in front of me was the World Trade Center, the two towers. When I looked to the left of me 
was Ellis Island, these symbols of freedom. And here I sat as a 32 year old man with tears coming down my eyes and I could feel the arms of God wrapped around me for the first time in my life. And for the first time in my life, I felt okay. Now, okay was a big deal. Okay was a big deal, you know? But then I fell for that biggest trap that we all fall for, or not we all, but a lot of people fall for. I fell, for, I fell prey to comfortability. Because even though I did that fifth step, and even though I did some amends, you know, other things started to become important. I'm back with the wife, I got the kids, coaching baseball, coaching basketball, going to my daughter's swim meets, doing all the things that we get to do. You know, thank God we get to do that stuff. But that became my primary, that overtook my primary purpose. And all of a sudden, very quickly, my life started to go down. You know, I live on the ocean right here. If I take the boat out on the ocean, I've got to tell you guys, every day, well, now it's about 7.15 every morning, you're on that ocean, right? You can see the curvature of the earth and the sun rises. It's the most spectacular thing you'll ever see in your life, well, for me anyway. And I could stare at that sun coming up every day, you know. But what recovery is, it's like I'm drifting. And see, I'm in that boat and I'm looking at the sun, but I don't see that I'm drifting from town to town to town. And all of a sudden, before you know it, I'm in trouble again in my recovery. And at 10 years of sobriety without, you know, going into a big story here, I blow up my life in Alcoholics Anonymous. I walk out of my marriage. I blow up that. I'm the guy that builds a beautiful spiritual structure up for me and my family. And I tear it down with a sense of series of sprees. And you don't need to be drinking to blow up your life in Alcoholics Anonymous. That's for sure. Just sponsor a lot of people. You'll find that out. And I'm living this double life again in Alcoholics Anonymous. How'd that happen? How did I have that moment at five years that then all of a sudden at 10 years, I'm, I'm disconnected again from God, from you? giving my sponsor about 30% what's going on. I'm living this double life, doing things I never thought I'd do. And by the time I'm 13 years sober, I'm getting thirsty again. You know, 13 years, years without a drink, you know, or 13 years sober, I walk into a bar one night. I understand what Dr. Bob talks about when he says he's stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? I didn't want to drink, but man, I needed to drink because the pain was so great or the way I was living my life again. And I walked into this bar and I ordered a drink and... It was like the devil and the angel popped out on my shoulder. Drink it, don't drink it, drink it, don't drink it. And I don't know. It was almost like I was in a blackout. I'm staring at that drink when all of a sudden a hand went around that glass and pulled it back. And when I looked up, the bartender just happened to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said to me, what are you doing? Apparently throwing my life away. And what happened to me is I took my tail, I put, put it between my legs, and I left that bar, and two weeks later, I'm in a meeting where I'm hearing this guy speak, and I'll just show you the power of the ego. Two weeks earlier, I want to drink. Two weeks later, I'm in this meeting. This guy's doing a workshop, and I'm judging this guy because he sounds too good to be true. But that gentleman that night became my sponsor for the next 17 years. And to make this story a lot shorter, he brought me through the steps. He, you know, basically, I just recreated my life all over again, you know, and I and uh, went through a divorce, went through a lot of things, you know, a lot of adversities in my life, just like many of us, you know, uh, being sober and being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't keep you problem-proof. That's what it's damn sure, as most of you might know, you know. So, you know, I, I go through the steps. I go through a lot of things. And, uh, you know, I, my life's just got better and better and better, you know. Um, but adversity hit, you know. Uh, I'm 18 months sober. I forgot to even mention this, you know. And uh, there was times in my sobriety when, I, you know, is there really a God that can help a guy like me? Is there really a God? And does God hear my prayers? 
I'm 18 months sober. I'll never forget this day. I walked into a bar one day. I mean, I walked into my parents' house and I found my father dead. My father was dead on the floor. Now, I'm doing a lot of 12-step calls back in those days. That was very common back in my neighborhood, you know. Uh, so I'm very well-versed in the art of going on to a house and doing a 12-step call. So I'm in there and I call my sponsor. He goes, let's pray and let's call 911. I call 911 and, you know, we're praying. All of a sudden, the first cop shows up. He's taking the information down. He looks at me and goes, I don't see you walking the streets anymore. I said, yeah, I don't do that anymore. Taking a little bit more information down, he goes, matter of fact, I don't even see you drinking in bars anymore. I said, yeah, I don't do that anymore either. He goes, how do you do that? I said, well, I go to this thing called Alcoholics Anonymous, and apparently it's working. And I wound up 12-stepping that cop over my dead father's body. And I tell you this for a reason. About eight months ago, seven months ago, I'm in my home group. Huge, like I said, big home group, 300 people every Sunday night. And I get a tap on my shoulder and I turn around, and it's the cop who's now retired and he's been looking for me. And he came to the meeting, he found out where my home group was. He came to find me to let me know that that night he was celebrating 34 years of sobriety, that he was sober from the day that I met him over my dead father's body. Now, I don't tell you that for applause, I don't tell you that for any reason because I can't get him drunk. I mean, I couldn't get him sober, I can't get him drunk, right? I tell you that for a reason, that God will use you without your permission, even in the hardest of times. And one of the first spiritual truths I've ever learned was that in order to get out of the darkness of my life, I need to serve others. So this life of service has been something that has really gone on for a long period of time of carrying a message to the alcoholic who still suffers. And we do that in a lot of different ways. You know, so, you know, adversity hits 1999. I'm on the job and I'm in a horrific accident. Horrific. I've had 41 surgeries in the last 21 years, I guess. Uh, I've had 12 back operations. I've had three knee replacements, three shoulder replacements. I, I'm really five foot eight, but after they put all the metal in me, I'm six foot four. It's a miracle. But uh, the truth of the matter is, you know, uh, I've been through the ringer like many of us too, you know. So I've gone through that. I've gone through divorce, you know. Uh, you know, uh, COVID hit, and you know, as you guys know, the world turned upside down, you know. Uh, my mom was living with us. Uh, she was uh, really suffering bad from dementia. We couldn't handle it no more. I became the parents of my parent. That's a weird thing altogether. And so we had to put my parent, my mom away. My mom had a knee replacement at 90 years old. My mom was a Jane Fonda workout freak. She was always in shape. It's bizarre when they even say that. But at 90 years old, uh, 90 years old, the doctor says she needs a knee replacement. I'm like, what are you, crazy? He says, she's in better shape than all you kids. So my mom had a knee replacement. And when that happens, when a person at all goes under anesthesia, you know, dementia could be a real problem. And my mom really, it really catapulted her dementia so bad that we couldn't even take care of her anymore. We put her in a, a, a assisted living and, uh, and COVID hits and the whole joint gets COVID. And a lot of them died. And my mom was one of them. And I'll tell you this for a reason, you know, how many meetings have I been to? How many conferences have I been to? How many, how many Zoom talks have I been to? How many times have I heard the evidence of the power of God and power of Alcoholics Anonymous come from other people who have gone through things, traumatic things, you know, losing family, losing kids, losing bankruptcies, you name it, whatever the adversity is. I mean, that's the that's the gift that we get coming to Alcoholics Anonymous is to hear, not to hear people tell their their problems or the things they're going through, but to see how they could stay sober through that stuff. 
And here I am, I'm coming out of a physical therapist's office and the lady calls me, the hospice nurse calls me and says, your mom's going to die any minute, you better get here. And my brothers and sisters live all over the country. I'm the only one that's here in New Jersey. And I go to uh, see my mom and I haven't seen her in about six months. And I think that, uh, I think I'm going to walk in the room and find my 60-year-old mother. Well, it's, that's how delusional I was. It was my 94-year-old mother who I haven't seen in six months because everything was shut down in New Jersey. And my sisters are hitting me up, FaceTime, so we can talk to her. We can talk to her. And when I met the hospice nurse, she gave me the you know COVID test, and I had to put the PPE on. And she said to me, "Your mom could, your mom can't open her eyes, and your mom can't speak, but she could hear you." And when she pulled that curtain back, what I saw in the bed was a skeleton, my mother. And then I had that moment, that moment I've heard from a million ponies. That moment where I was able to sit with my mom in her last minutes, her last hours, and to hold her hand. And when I grabbed her hand, I said, hi, mom, it's me, Jimmy. Her chest exploded with oxygen. She knew her son came to see her. And I talked about our lives together and how much I loved her and thank her for my mother bailed me out of every jail I was ever in. Matter of fact, when she was 90 years old, the dementia was so bad, we were having lunch right downstairs, me and my wife. And my mother looked at me and she said, Jimmy, where were you? I couldn't find you. I walked the streets for two years looking for my son. Where were you? And my mind was like, do I answer that? Because within the next three seconds, she didn't even know who I was. But I had that moment with her. And I was able to sit there. And, that, you know, that's the only reason why that happens is because of Alcoholics Anonymous and being able to recover from this thing that was killing me. You know, uh, I got 30 seconds to go. I got very involved with service. I got very involved with, you know, carrying a message. I went to a service assembly once and, you know, I got hooked on that. And I don't have the time to tell you that whole story. But, you know, I just rotated out as the uh, as the uh, delegate to New Jersey, the Panel 71 delegate. And what an experience that was, being in Brooklyn, being with 93 other delegates, 135 people at the General Service Conference, talking about the things we talk about doing the business of Alcoholics Anonymous. How does that happen? You know, a kid from the streets to the conference and everything that's in between. Nothing more than God, Alcoholics Anonymous, good friendships, people of Alcoholics Anonymous, and the kindness of strangers. What a life. I'm so grateful for this. Thank you so much.